Chicago. This is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Patty Blagojevich and Leonard Goodman. Our program tonight coming to you from our own base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. If you'd like to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. If you want to tweet me a comment, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. And, of course, you can join us on the World Wide Web audio and video at beyondthebeltway.com. Well, this past week in this country, it was another bombshell week for President Trump and uh, legal and, and his legal problems uh, dealing with uh, special prosecutors and, and Robert Mueller and his attorney and uh, all things related legal. It was really a big week, including uh, you know the, the James Comey revelations and the release of his memo and his book. So a lot, there's a lot out there about lawyers and clients and charges and countercharges and the legal system and everything else. And in the middle of this, there was also a decision, decision last week by the United States Supreme Court, that they chose not to review the case of former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, who's serving 14 years in prison in Colorado uh, for corruption charges. Uh, and so tonight, in this first hour, it's unique. We haven't done this for quite a while on this program. We are joined, and we have a special guest, and she is Patty Blagojevich. She is the former first lady of the state of Illinois, uh, married to uh, Governor Rod Blagojevich. And, Patty, nice to have you with us. Thank you. And I should mention at the beginning of the broadcast, uh, uh, Patty and I have known each other for well over 30 years, and, and I've known you know, Rod for a little less than that. So there's a personal element. I, I wanted to be totally candid with that uh, with our audience. But tonight, um, because the Supreme Court uh, rejected your husband's case, and it was the second time they've chosen not to become involved, your only hope now is that President Trump will step forward and either commute Rod's sentence or uh, give him a full pardon. Is that correct, or is there some other thing that could happen? Well, I mean, there are other things that could potentially happen. Um, at some point, the Supreme Court's going to have to take up a case like my husband's because they're going to have to clarify this this split in the circuits, and this, they're going to have to clarify this very fuzzy law that um, exists. And when they do finally take that case up and they rule the way we believe they'll rule, I think we'd be able to go back to court. But who knows when that's going to be. In the near, in the near term, um, uh, you know, trying to appeal to the president pretty much is our only, only shot. You know, we thought the courts were going to be able to work the way they're supposed to. We had faith in our court system and our judicial system. We thought, like, a judge's job was to make sure that you had a fair trial. Um, but we were totally um, uh, underestimated the power of the prosecutor to, you know, bully and influence the system. And as we unfold, by the way, your attorney joins us, and we're going to hear from him uh, in the next segment. But uh, because Donald Trump is so important to your family's future, when Rod was a guest on The Apprentice, what did he ever share with you about the personal conversations that he had with Donald Trump? And how close did they become during that period, if at all? Well, I think that they had a good rapport. I think that um, the... Um, president then, you know, real estate mogul, um, yeah. had um, had always nice things to say to Rod. Um, 
thought he was really getting a raw deal. Um, obviously, had a decent opinion of him to have him on the show. Um, and then one thing that really stuck in my mind was when um, my daughters and I flew out to New York for the finale of The Apprentice because they gather everybody up. And Rod and I and the two girls found ourselves in an elevator with um, the president and Ivanka, his daughter. And um, the president said to my girls, they said, um, you girls should be proud of your, do- your father. He's a good man. And they were, he was very kind to my girls. Did he reach out to you after the conviction? No, he never has. But I have seen some of his public statements. Um, people have asked him around. Um, people have asked him on the campaign trail or that kind of thing, or when the judge reinstated the 14-year sentence even after five of the counts were thrown out. Um, and he, um, he had good public comments um, that are on the record. So I feel like he knows, he knows Rod. I think he likes him. Um, and, you know, I think he, I don't think there's anybody that could really say that a 14-year sentence is How do you go about getting on his radar? I mean, because of your background, because of Rod's background, I mean, there, there's political people that you know, um, maybe most of them on the Democratic side of the aisle, but I'm sure you know Republicans as well. How do you, how do you get before the president? Well, I think that's the, you know... That's that's the big question. Uh, there's so much going on in the world. Obviously, the president has so much on his plate. I mean, world events are are crazy, and you know, domestic events are crazy. He's got a lot to think about. So there's you know, to be able to kind of cut through that um, is is difficult. And um, you know, we're just gonna we are going through the legal paths. We're you know, we've got um, we'll be filing commutation petitions um, bef- before the pardon attorney. So there are legal steps we can take. If you were to look into the camera right now and talk to the president, what would you say to him? Well, I can't. You know, I don't. The president has to look at this and, you know, look at the merits of it. And um, I believe that um, if he just took a look at the facts and saw the facts of the case, he could see that justice was not served and that the, um, the, the power to pardon or commute someone's sentence um, exists because it's a chance to fix things that the court did not get right. Um, and so um, with that power, I'm hoping that at, um, he will look at our case and, and see that justice was not served. We relied on the courts and they let us down and that he would bring some um, relief and help to my family and bring my husband home. Because he is currently involved in some questionable acts, at least in his view, of federal prosecutors and special prosecutors, uh, and Mr. Comey, and also uh, 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 Mr. Mueller, is he in a unique situation now where he may understand some of the um, aggressive action by federal prosecutors? You know, it's really interesting because I was talking to a friend of mine, and she reminded me that um, Mueller, James Mueller, was the FBI director when my husband um, was arrested and this whole thing started. I mean, the same cast of characters that are swirling around now, the president, um, were there 10 years ago coming after my husband and probably with a lot of the same tactics um, that, you know, using the FBI for political, for political purposes. Um, you know, they came after my husband um, and they're still doing it. These people, they're, they're, you know, going after any, they're using their office to go after anybody that they don't like who might be unpopular or controversial. Now, there are perhaps hundreds, if not thousands of people listening to this broadcast this evening, they may know someone that's in prison, maybe a loved one, maybe a friend, and they know the impact that it has on a family, and they may be listening tonight, maybe somewhat sympathetic, 
but might also say to you, but Patty, this happens to lots and lots of people. What makes you special? Well, you know, I, um, I, my heart goes out to any family member of someone who's incarcerated. I mean, it's having lived through it for the last six years, I know the toll it takes on family members, especially the children, and the time that you're separated, you'll never be able to get back. So my heart goes out to them, and I think anybody that is wrongly imprisoned should you know, be able to pursue the opportunity to be able to you know, correct the injustice. We're talking to Patty Blagojevich, the former First Lady of Illinois. We will continue and hear more about the specific legal aspects of the case when we roll on from Chicago. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. We're talking about the cases of Rod Blagojevich, the former governor of Illinois. And we're talking about this in context because some of the allegations in the Blagojevich case are similar to some of the things that are going on in, in, in the Justice Department now with President Trump thinking that the Justice Department has overreached. And uh, we are now joined by uh, Leonard Goodman. He is an attorney for Rod Blagojevich. And there's a couple of legal questions that I want to ask you, uh, Rod, and share with the audience. Uh, the terms pardon and commutation have been out there. Uh, which are you seeking and, and what... How are you most likely to be successful in releasing the governor early? Well, you know, I think we will seek both, a pardon uh, and or a commutation. Um, A pardon is actually erasing the conviction, Mm -hmm. which is obviously the the best thing you could hope for. And that's what happened last week with Scooter Libby. Correct. Right, because he had been commuted earlier by President Bush and now was pardoned. A commutation would get him home to his family, which is also important. Um, So we would, I think a pardon would be appropriate in this case. I wouldn't recommend that in every case, but um, I do think it is appropriate. I, um, you know, I think if the president looks at the facts of this case, he will see an overreach. Um, This is not, you know, most political corruption cases that you look at are people that have enriched themselves in office. Um, they've taken, they've become rich, um, taken money, um, taken bribes, taken kickbacks. And as most people know, uh, Blagojevich never did that. I mean, he never tried to enrich himself. He was never um, put money in his pocket. This wasn't about that. This was about political deals that he tried to make. As an, as an attorney, before you became involved with the case, you obviously were living in Illinois. It was front page uh, in every newspaper in the state for you know, well over a couple of years. Um, Rod did not go quietly. He denied that he did what he had been charged with, still denies that, but he went way beyond what a normal person would do. He decided to go public, attack the Justice Department, go on television, sometimes with Patty, and he made, a, he made himself a national media celebrity while the justice wheels were turning. Was that a mistake, you know, if I was his attorney, I wouldn't have allowed him to make some of the, the caustic statements he made about the justice system. I, I think, you know, the, you have to understand the federal system. I mean, people are used to um, incredible respect, and I think um, that could be a mistake. I know some of the things he did is because he didn't have any money. You know, he made uh, he went on some programs that maybe he didn't do it for, um, for his ego. I think some of it, they needed the money. Um, and I think that's an, you know, an interesting thing about this case is this is somebody that did not go to Springfield or to Washington to enrich themselves or their family. He actually believed um, in what he was doing. Patty, do you regret 
that Rod went so public and so aggressive against the government during the pre-trial period? You know, it's interesting that um, people ask me about that, and you have to really know my husband. You kind of put yourself in his position. You're in this very public place. Um, you're the you know, governor of the fifth largest state, and somebody gets on TV and says you've committed these horrendous crimes and that Lincoln should roll over his, in his grave. And it hurt Rod so much that anybody would actually believe that that was true, that he felt like he had to take every opportunity he could to try to tell people it wasn't true. Because you know how people are. They hear these charges and they assume people are guilty without even a trial. I mean, you know, our system is uh, guilty, innocent until proven guilty, but you know, the way people think, they think, oh, there's smoke, there's fire, they're charging them, it's got to be true. And he just bristled at that thought that people could actually believe this of him. But were, but were people telling him, including yourself, were you telling him, hey, calm down, the G, the G is out to get you, they're going to get you, don't rile them up any more than they're riled up? Well, I don't know. I don't think, you know, I, had he just, like, sat at home and waited for his trial date, I don't think the outcome would have been any different, to be honest with you. I think that, um, you know, once the uh, Patrick, Patrick Fitzgerald moved and, on him and um, arrested him, and uh, from that point on, I don't think there was any, looking back on it, there was no chance whatsoever that we would ever win because they – after they brought down a sitting governor like that, they had no choice but to win. They tried them twice. They changed the jury instructions from one trial to the other. They let, wouldn't let our evidence in. They were going to get him no matter what, and I don't think him going on any kind of TV show would have made any difference. Leonard, what's your assessment as to why the government came down so hard? And again, for those listening around the country, he was sentenced to 14 years in prison. Put that in context, if you will, with other governors, whether it's the former governor of Illinois, George Ryan, or whether it's the former governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Bob McDonald, these were, these were executives who went to prison for a lot less time. So what's the difference here, Leonard? You know, it, it's an incredibly long sentence. Um, you know, I, I, can't answer, um, I can't answer what was in the prosecutor's minds in seeking such a harsh sentence. Um, you know, in all of those other cases, you have somebody that actually enriched themselves in office. They took vacations. They took um, gifts from supporters. You know, Blagojevich never did that. Um, his case was a purely political case. You know, I think one thing people have to understand about the federal government is they pick and choose their targets. So he was selected. It's not like the state system where the police make an arrest, someone commits a crime, there's an arrest, um, and then it's handed over to a prosecutor. They chose him. Uh, in fact, uh, he was chosen quite early in his administration as somebody that the, the feds wanted to prosecute. Uh, a lot was invested in his case, as Patty said, two trials. Why do you think that was the case? I, I don't know. I mean, I... Uh, you know, it's, uh, I believe a lot of it is career advancement. I mean, the prosecutors that selected him and made a case against him, including Pat Fitzgerald, and then the lead prosecutors on the case, they all went on to bigger and better things. They're all partners in, in law firms. Um, you know, it is a stepping stone out of that office to go after a high-profile figure. Do you, do you agree that Rod was singled out early in his gubernatorial career, Patty? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Somebody told me that during that time that Rod got um, arrested, there were five other Democratic governors that were also 
in trouble at the same time, uh, like the governor of Puerto Rico. There were a whole bunch of them. It was almost like the Justice Department had decided that um, we're going after Democratic governors. And I, I feel like it was a concerted effort. Um, like I said, some of those same players that were there then are still around um, using their office for political reasons. Um, I mean, who's to know why it happened? You know, it's now it's just our job to have to pick up the pieces. Has anyone, I mean, 14 years, has any, is there any other political figure that, oh. that was given that level uh, of... How about this? I think my husband is quite possibly the only politician in the history of the United States to be serving any time for fundraising um, requests. That's all he did was request fundraising, request campaign contributions. There's nobody else serving any time for campaign contributions, ever. And that's a clarification. Ever. And in the case of George Ryan and Bob McDonald of Virginia... Uh, they served, no Governor time. Ryan served five years in prison. And in that particular case, uh, you know, again, there was questions as to whether or not he helped himself financially. And again, obviously the prosecutors made a case that there was a link to that, that people died because of some corruption that existed in his office. But that was five years versus 14 years. And I guess the the question that probably a lot of people are asking around the country, and it's, I think it's the single question, there's a lot of people in the state of Illinois who are not fans of Rod Blagojevich. And, and I've spoken to many of them, and I'll probably hear from them tonight. But to a person, they can't imagine, they think that 14 years was too much. So I guess my question is, another aspect in a trial, you can choose to, uh, it's the trial penalty Explain what that means, Leonard. You know, yes, that is a sort of a rule of thumb, is that if you go to trial, you're going to get more time. If you fight hard um, and, you know, try to embarrass the government, uh, they may come down harder on you. Um, you know, George Ryan went to trial as well, as did right. Governor McDonald in Virginia. Governor McDonald's sentence was, I think, two years. Before and he never it was, served a day. Never served a right. day. Yeah. Got an appeal bond, um, you know, so, yeah, the, the system doesn't make a lot of sense. Was and he offered a plea deal? Was Rod McGuire well, offered I was not his trial deal? attorney, so you'd have to ask his trial attorneys about that. I don't know. I know he wouldn't have taken it no. because in his heart he didn't do anything wrong. He was following the rules as he understood them about fundraising. And as, you know, Patty sort of explained to you, I mean, the, the rules on fundraising, federal judges have looked at them and say these are murky. I don't understand them. Um, you know, it used to be the rule that if that – if you ask somebody for a contribution, even though you know they want something in return from you, you're safe as long as you don't make any any promise to them. Blagojevich followed that rule, and they put him in prison anyway. From a legal perspective, what do you do next? You've been rejected by the Supreme Court to be heard twice. We've talked about what Patty is doing, and we'll continue conversation with Patty. But legally, what what are the things that can be done now? Well, Patty's absolutely correct um, in what she said. Really, the only legal avenue he would have is if there's a change in the law, and that is if the Supreme Court finally decides to take a look at the circuit split, which, which you know, right now, if you're out on the East Coast, um, an, an elected official, there's one set of rules. It's much harder to get a conviction. But if you're here in the Midwest at a city like Chicago, it's very easy for prosecutors to get a conviction. That has to be reconciled by the Supreme Court someday. They decided not to do it with with Rod Blagojevich's case, but 
maybe they'll take another case. The problem is, as Patty also said, very few elected officials are prosecuted for fundraising violations. Blagojevich is one of the few. And the reason why he was targeted for fundraising is because the centerpiece of the case, as you remember, the thing that Pat Fitzgerald said was had him, you know, had Lincoln rolling over in his grave, was that he tried to make a deal with Barack Obama um, over the Senate seat, basically to trade political appointments. He was going to appoint Obama's choice, Valerie Jarrett, for the Senate, and in exchange he wanted to be Health and Human Services Secretary. And Blagojevich's point was, in his mind, I would be the best person for this job. I gave health care to so many kids here in, in Illinois. Um, I would be a great Health and Human Services Secretary. He truly believed that. He tried to make a political deal, and I think that was the centerpiece of the case. That's what uh, Pat Fitzgerald said, we had to stop this crime spree before it happened. We've got a pause. Okay. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760 760- 799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at BrianSellsTheDesert.com. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us tonight. We're talking with Patty Bogoyevich. She is the former First Lady of Illinois, and we're talking about her attempts uh, to get early release for her husband who's serving a 14-year sentence in uh, Inglewood, uh, California, uh, Colorado, by the way, in federal prison uh, for political corruption. Um, a recent article in Chicago Magazine detailed uh, the trials and tribulations that he has on a daily basis, uh, and uh, I'd like to spend a little time talking about the trials and tribulations that you spend every day thinking about your husband in federal prison. Because so many people, I think, do not understand that that any sentence, whether it be for a state crime or a federal crime, those that are affected by it are family. In many cases, not as much as the person who's been incarcerated, but, uh, but a very short second place. Oh, it's definitely a very short second place. I mean, the, the people that I think are... Um the biggest victims in all of this are my daughters, for sure. I mean, Rod decided to go into politics. Um, it was a, it's a risky, knowing what we know now, I would never advise anybody to go into politics. You're putting your family at risk that you could be, become a victim of an overzealous prosecutor. But my girls didn't ask for this. They, they are, you know, they are unfortunately blessed with a very um, recognizable last name. And this is a burden that they've now had to carry with them, um, going into high school, into college, um, throughout their lives. And it's, you know, even for them, what's the hardest part is the tremendous anxiety that they feel when they have to say their name out loud because they just never know what kind of reaction they're going to get from people. And usually when we meet people and they recognize the name or recognize us, it's overwhelmingly positive, but it's just you never know. That's that that uneasiness. Um, 
So it's 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 the hardest for my girls. It's for sure. And I know you um, asked me if um, the girls wanted to come on the show t- today, mm-hmm. and um, I asked them, and you know they would have done it if if I if I pressed them. But the problem is is that they've put themselves out before to try to help their dad at the last sentencing hearing. They both went up before the judge and spoke very con- movingly about um, their father and why they needed it home, him home. And they were immediately, um, their comments were immediately disregarded by the judge. And he's, you know, reinstated that 14-year sentence again. Um, and it's just like a wound that will never heal for them. And so now we're like a little bit almost a week past the bad news that we just recently got. And this last week, um, Annie missed three days of school. Amy's been home. She's at Northwestern. She's been home three nights where normally she lives on campus. Um, The shock and the disappointment for them is so real and so devastating that it needs, they need to have it heal a little bit and to keep talking about it. Um, um, it's just like kind of picking that wound open again. So I, I couldn't have them come here just because we're finally, finally starting to get back into, you know, on a normal footing where everybody can function and go to school. And and um, for me, this is going to be my my crusade to get their hus- their father home and get my husband home. This is not a burden that they need to be able to have to carry. Or not their, it's not their job. Rod in this story talked about his loneliness Tell us about your emptiness, the emptiness of your life. Oh, yeah. For the last six years and from now until 2024, unless the president yeah. steps up. And it's that's just a scary, scary thing to think about. Um, it's really, um, you know, Amy's a senior in college, so four of the last six years she's been at college. So, And I've tried to um, hold on to our family home as much as possible, but most of the time it's just my younger daughter Annie and I kicking around our house and it's not only the like physical loneliness with just the two of us in the house and you know he has he had his um study in the house you know where his um you know desk is and where his you know where all his books are and it's quite possibly the most beautiful room in our house um the library but my girls can't we can't even I'd say, why don't you go in there and do your homework in there? You know, you could put on the fireplace, that kind of thing. And they don't even want to enter that room because it just reminds them that he's not home. And it's does does he want to ever see family pictures? I mean, uh, you know, things in the past that, or, or will they just depress him? Yeah, it's interesting because I know a lot of people and a lot of friends of his have written to him, um, and even friends of mine have written to him, and he doesn't even, you know, he'll read letters of people like strangers that send him letters, but he doesn't like to read the letters from people he knows because that makes him sad that he's missing things. Like if like my friends would write about the girls or something that happened, he, it, it's just too heartbreaking for him to, to be face-to-face with what he's missing. When you're a hot politician, and your husband was a hot politician, being reelected governor of Illinois, uh, you're very popular. Everybody wants to gravitate to you. Everybody wants to go out to dinner with you. Um, those people that were close to you personally during the time when Rod was on top, how many of those people are still friends today? Well, not a whole lot. You know, they say there's something. I had like a new definition of friendship after all this happened. And my definition of friendship is someone that will call you on the phone and ask you how you're doing, even if they think your phone might be bugged. 
right? Because once, you know, there was any kind of, you know, once the arrest happened, that phone got really quiet. Nobody's calling. Nobody, it's like you've got smallpox or something like that. Nobody wants to catch what you've got. Um, but, you know, ironically, it was my friends from college, those people I knew long before um, we were ever involved in politics, that don't, wouldn't care. They're going to call up and ask me, how are you? What can we do for you? How can we help? Those are your true friends that, you know, they don't care who's listening. They're your friend, and they're going to be there to help you. When did you first realize that your life was going to be changed? Um, I knew that when they came and arrested him. I, from that point on, I knew that things were never going to be the same again. It was just um, there was no going back from, the, from that action of them arresting him. There's, what was that day like? Um, that day was like, um, like almost like a nightmare. The, it, well, it was a nightmare. Um, you know, they came and the phone rang at 630 in the morning and somebody said, you know, this is the FBI. Come open the door. We're here to arrest your husband. And I immediately thought it was a prank caller and I hung up. I'm like, get lost. And then they called back and they said, no, this, it, you know, you better get down here. Otherwise we're going to break your door down. And so that was, um, that was terrifying, and, you know, I opened the door, and they rushed into my house and ran up to the second floor into our bedroom um, where my uh, younger daughter, who was five, had, like, crawling into our bed with us in the middle of the night like five-year-olds do sometimes. So she was asleep in our bed, and the FBI is on my second floor of my house, and my older daughter is, hears some noise, and she calls out, Mommy, and I said to her, Go to, back to sleep, honey. It's not time to get up yet, and I closed her door, and, you know, then they, you know, took him away while my girls were sleeping and, um, and took him out of our back and actually put handcuffs on him. And I looked at him and said, like, like, is this really necessary? You have to take him away in handcuffs under darkness? I mean, all they had to do was call up my husband's attorney and say, have your client come down to the, to the you know, office. I mean, there was no reason to come to our house and take him out of our house like that. And then the FBI agent had the, the nerve to say to me, well, we need to get going because the press isn't here yet. And I said to her, the only reason the press would be here is if you called and told them. So what are you telling me? We have to get going because you obviously notified the press. Um, it was, uh, and then, then I, I had this, the only thought I had in my mind was I had to get my girls out of the house before the press showed up and get them off to school so I could figure out what in the world was going on because um, it was so shocking. I, at the same time, I got a phone call from my sister-in-law saying the FBI had gone to my brother-in-law to ap- open our campaign office. They would knocked on their door at 630 in the morning. And at the same time, they went after my husband's chief of staff and some supporters, uh, other supporters of my husband. They all, like, it was like a, a concerted effort to get everybody at 630 in the morning. Um, and just get everybody at once. And so it was, I had to get my daughters off to school to try to figure out what, they couldn't even tell me, Bruce, what it was about. We had no idea why. It was something to do with the Senate seat. You know, that they didn't even have an indictment on my husband till like four months after he was arrested. They arrested him in December. The indictment didn't come, five months, did not come down until April. Um, they didn't have any, they, they couldn't even tell us what it was all about. The most famous, at least political, acquaintance of your husband at that time uh, was Barack Obama. Right. During this entire ordeal, 
What did Barack Obama do, say, any communication at all? Oh, no, nothing. He's, he's one of the uh, smallpox people, right? Like, he wasn't going to reach out to us, and, you know, there, was, there would never be anything that he would be able to, you know, do to help or um, reach out. There's not a single word. Were there attempts to get his assistance? No, the only thing that we did with regards to Barack Obama was um, towards the end of his sentence, we, you know, my daughters wrote him personal letters um, to try to ask him to commute my husband's sentence. I mean, he knows Rod, and, you know, they served together in the state legislature. He was a state senator when Rod was governor. Um, You know, we had hoped that he would... um, see fit to, you know, commute my husband's sentence at that time. And I know that people, um, people we know promised us they would put my daughter's letters into his hands. And so he did get a personal appeal from my girls and turned a deaf ear. Rahm Emanuel, did he have any role? Um, no, Rahm's been, you know, supportive, um, I think in spirit, but, you know, certainly, um, you know, he's, I think he's got his hands full as governor, as a uh, mayor. So, again, within the political community, there wasn't anybody that stepped up that was going to be willing to make a call or at least give uh, Rod a a listen or his case a listen. No, you know, it's interesting. Not that there was an attempt for obstruction of justice. I'm not suggesting that at all. I know. I'm just saying is that, you know, when when sometimes, you know, a politician loses their power, they lose that power real fast. You know, it's interesting because I think my husband's... We're going to have to pause. Okay. I want to follow up yeah. on that when we continue. We're talking with Patty, Patty Bogoyevich. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live. The experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Bruce Dumont back and Patty Bagoy, but you wanted to pick up on a point that we had to break for the spot for. Sure. You were asking about um, why weren't there people, powerful people out there yeah. to help Rod after he got arrested. And I think it's because his entire career as governor, even even before that, he was so focused on trying to help everyday people, to try to help the mom, um, you know, single mom whose kid needs health care, and try to help the little lady with her bus ride, and, and, you know, trying to do, you know, these capital bills to get people going back to work. He was so focused, and he was doing battle in Springfield, battling Mike Madigan um, all the time, trying to move the state forward for, like, ordinary, everyday people who were powerless. And so those powerless people couldn't do anything to help him. He didn't make his career garnering rich and fancy friends who were powerful and, you know, hobnobbing with all the other governors. He never even would go to those governors' association mm-hmm. meetings. Yeah, um, he, was, and, he, was, he was independent. Yeah. Question, how often do you talk to Rod? Uh, every night. Every night he gets 300 minutes of phone time a month. So that's about 10 did minutes Did he know you were doing this program this evening? He did. Any advice to you? Um, he says that he, you know, gets good reports about, you know, about me. So he, 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 he feels pretty good. How often do you visit? Um, now it's about four times a year and, um, it's, it gets less and less. I mean, when we, when he was first out there, you know, the first year or two, we were going a lot and the kids were younger, you know, they were both in high school, they were high school and grammar school. So Mm -hmm. as they get older and their lives become more complicated and it's harder to pull them out of school without them getting 
behind, it gets to be less. And, you know, the really saddest part about this to me is that um, no one really wants to go visit them. And it's they don't want to go visit them because it's so sad. When you go you go to see him and um, you even if it's like the weekend and you see him a couple times and then um, invariably when we'd leave on Sunday, Annie would cry all the way to the airport in the plane on the way home. And then everyone, for at least a couple of weeks after that visit, there's a very palpable post-visit depression because, you know, it's easy to for the kids to, you know, keep them busy. And that's what I've, like, really done um, the last six years is keep them busy, keep them focused on school, life goes on. But when they come face-to-face with their father that they're deprived of, it's so devastating to have to leave. And so um, we're going back next month. Um, and I, you know, the both kids were like kind of groaning. I'm like, don't you want to see your father? Like, and Annie said to me, mommy, I don't want to go because when I'm there, I'm so de- sad when I'm there. And when I'm home, I'm so depressed about it. And so, you know, we know that we, it's important for them to see their father and, you know, for them to talk to him all the time and to have that relationship going. But the toll is, you know, it's, this is lifelong. These are lifelong scars my girls have to live with. And you. Yeah, well, I mean. When you, when, when you go to that federal prison and you have to go through the metal detectors and take everything out of your pockets and walk in and wait until his number is called so he can come down yeah. and meet with you, there's an, there's an anticipation. right. What goes through your mind when you see him walk through that door? Well, I'm usually happy to see him, and I usually remark about, man, does he look skinny? <laughs> because, you know, the prison food is terrible, and um, so that's my usually my first thought. But it was like, you know, I, I'm really good about um, trying to keep that stiff upper lip for my girls, um, and the only exception to that was the very first time that we went to see him. Because um, I remember that, like, it was, you know, just the other day, you know, six years ago, and we, you know, fly into the Denver airport and you know we it's all new we'd never been there before and you rent our car and get there and we're driving you know with our little gps up to the prison i could see it and it's like friday night and the sun's going down and you know at that point it's like the tears were streaming down my face i just couldn't believe that this is exactly you know this was my life i was like bringing my children to see their father in a federal penitentiary and then at that time, he was in the low-security prison where it was all metal detectors and big doors clanking behind you. And like you said, sitting there waiting for him to come down, and I was crying. And um, Amy just said to me, Mommy, stop crying. Stop crying. Daddy doesn't want to see you do that. Um, and that was pretty my, much my only, I feel like, my only real moment um, that I couldn't hold it together for my, for my girls. The release date is May of 2024. Now, does that include... The good time behavior is that is that I think or is so. There a date I, I less think, than that? I think so because 2024 would be um, 12 years and the sentence was 14 years, so that includes the good behavior time. Okay, which he's been exemplary his behavior, so there's no reason to believe that that wouldn't. Um. One other question: it's a it's a contemporary political question, but in the race for the governorship of Illinois. Uh, campaign spots are being used by the Republican incumbent that have a conversation, recorded conversation, FBI wiretap alleged, between your husband and J.B. Pritzker, the Democratic governor. You've seen those spots. They're all over the place. What's your reaction when you hear those spots? Well, it's awful because it's awful for, um, first of all, it, it's incredibly infuriating that that 
um, conversations that we wanted played in court to help exonerate my husband are now being used just for political reasons and are somehow out there. You know, we have hours and hours of wiretaps that we wanted played in court, and, and we felt that if they were played to the jury, we wouldn't be sitting here today. But now that, but that you know, they're being used for political purposes, and we couldn't use them to help exonerate my husband is extremely upsetting. And on a personal note, my you know my daughters watch TV too, and so my older daughter is sitting at you know Northwestern with her friends, and on comes these commercials. It's incredibly embarrassing and humility for my daughters to have to be sitting around with their friends and see commercials like this come on TV. It's so insensitive. Last question. You grew up like everybody else, thinking truth, justice, and the American way. You've had your experience with the federal justice department. What's your reaction now? Yeah, I am. Um, you know what? I have. It's not until you're through this um, situation. God, God. Hopefully, nobody listening will ever have to live through this. But you see things in a totally different light now. And you know, now it's like I'm not one of those people that say, "Oh, they must be guilty just because they're charged." Because I know the way this system works. And now I'm like almost lean the other way. I don't. I don't believe anybody's guilty anymore. Patty Bolgoyevich, thanks very much for joining us. Leonard Goodman, thank you very much for being with thanks us as well. It's up to the President of the United States. We hope you enjoyed this interview. Whether you want to do anything to follow up on it, I guess a letter to the President is about the only thing you can do. I'm Bruce Dumont, back with another full hour. Thanks for joining us tonight. the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? When floodwaters reach your door? When wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood? Or an earthquake is destroying buildings? Or is the best time, perhaps, today? During a disaster, you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think. Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. 
Live from Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Dave Lundy and Nick Calm. Our program tonight coming to you from our own base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8289. If you'd like to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. If you want to send me an email it's uh, or tweet, it's Dumo at D-U-M-O. And of course, you can join us on the World Wide Web at beyondthebeltway.com. Well, in this segment, we're going to be talking about the, the past legal actions uh, of what happened this past week in politics, primarily in Washington, D.C., obviously. But again, we've got a couple of our regular guests here who will join us tonight, and I want to get there to spend a couple of minutes talking about their reaction to uh, uh, the interview with uh, with Patty Blagojevich, the former uh, first lady of Illinois who's seeking uh, uh, public support for her appeal to the President of the United States to uh, uh, commute or pardon her husband, who's now serving 14 years in federal prison. Dave Lundy, you're the card-carrying Democrat. Uh, your reaction to the interview and any, any new wrinkles that you heard tonight? You know, I, I feel sorry for um, Patty's girls. Um, I, I feel very sorry for Patty's girls. It's a horrible thing. Um, I think that the sentence um, was too long. I think that's something that we all agree on. I think even Nick agrees that 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 was a pretty extensive and excessive sentence. Um, I'm surprised it didn't get reduced previously. Um, But the idea that Rod Blagojevich was an innocent victim who just happened to be the target of overzealous federal prosecutors is not consistent with history. Um, And I am... uh, (laughs) Look... Pat Quinn was governor of the state of Illinois. No prosecutions. Um, I'm not even sure he was. There was an investigation uh, over those um, uh, several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce Rauner is a horrendously bad governor, but nobody accuses him of being corrupt, and there are no investigations, to the best of my knowledge. Um, you don't just wind up in jail because you've got prosecutors that are um, looking for somebody to throw in jail. But would you acknowledge that you could end up with 14 years? Because during pretrial, you decided you were going to make the, go- the, the government a target and you were going to go on any media outlet that, you know, more than 10,000 watts to make them look bad. Look, it is not a surprise that government prosecutors and judges yes. um, don't take kindly to being called <laughs> names and being told they're bad people and being told that, they're, that it's a witch hunt. Um, oh wait, sorry, wrong, wrong guy. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you just don't do that. You are expected when you go for a judge, you're expected to show some measure of contrition. And when you don't, they throw the book at you. Nick Com is our current caring Republican. Your, your area of expertise is reputations and repairing reputations. I want to talk a little bit about that mm-hmm. as it relates to uh, Rod Blagojevich at the moment, but your reaction to anything in the interview or uh, the fact that he was sentenced to 14 years in prison? Well, I think the world is probably coming to an end because I agree with every word that Dave Lundy said in his opening comments. I mean, he and I are both spin doctors um, by profession, and that was too much spin even for us. Um, it was, you know, it's really unfortunate. There certainly, uh, she was still being consistent with what she said uh, during the trial and after the trial. And I think, yeah, the sentence was too long. But I mean, there's no question about it that um, he got what he deserved because he brought it on himself. Why would President Trump 
commute or pardon Rod Blagojevich? Well, give, give me the reasons why he would do it, and then we're going to let Dave give the reasons why he wouldn't do it. Well, I think he would do it if he wanted to send the signal again about overzealous prosecutors. But that, like Scooter Libby? Like Scooter Libby, but now that he's pardoned Scooter Libby, the need or the opportunity to pardon Rod Blagojevich has diminished, if not disappeared entirely. Uh, Dave Lundy. You know, I think the only reason to do it is to send a message to James Comey, who was, uh, sorry, not Comey, um, uh, Mueller. Rob Mueller, yeah. who was at the time the uh, uh, the head of the FBI um, uh, and uh, was, you know, the FBI was intimately involved in that prosecution and the multi-year investigations. Um, and the wiretaps. And the wiretaps. You know, I'm reminded of the fact there were several things that were expected to happen um, and indictments that were expected to be brought uh, that never were. Um, remember, there was the whole there was a whole series of scandals around board appointments. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, his father-in-law, Patty's Patty's dad, Dick Mel, right. you know, talked about how um, the Rod was selling board seats, um, and th- that was never brought because the Senate seat issue took precedence. Mm-hmm. But so the reason I could imagine the the President Trump uh, potentially. Uh, doing something, um, possibly commuting the sentence, is just a, another uh, way of uh, saying to the prosecutors, I'm on top here. Um, I think it's different with Scooter Libby. I think that was much more about sending a message um, to uh, some of the potential witnesses uh, in the Mueller probe. Um, this would be more kind of a, hey, uh, I can do this, and you're just the prosecutor. There is also one other uh, perhaps rationale and the president has certainly found ways to, to address uh, this issue. And that is, uh, it changes the subject. I mean, uh, if the president wants to change the subject and he's got a bad news day, uh, this, this would dominate the news for a, for a news cycle or two. Yes, a- absolutely. But again, it's, frankly, it's not that interesting. It's interesting to Patty and, and the girls. And again, I would have no problem if he wanted to commute that sentence, because I think the sentence was too long. Um, I think a pardon would be out of line, but but a commutation, commutation right. would you know would would be okay. Um, uh, but does I, I just don't see this as a huge a com- national does a, interest. Does a computation? Well, the reason about the, the na- I mean, Rod Blagojevich made himself a national interest during this period, and I'm just suggesting that there also the issue that a computation maybe sends some. Uh, degree of, of goodwill to others, because I made the point, I mean, there's, there's tens of thousands of people who feel that their husbands have been either wrongly convicted uh, or have been given too many sentences. So does this give hope to them, or does it, does it make it more, does it, does it run the wrong he, other way? The thing is, President Trump, if he wants to send that sort of a signal to people who are wrongly tried, wrongly convicted, wrongly imprisoned, he has a whole heck of a lot more sympathetic uh, people to choose from in that regard. Right. And also, generally speaking, controversial uh, pardons or computations come towards the end of a presidential term, and that's a long way away. Well, I know it'll be no shock to you, Bruce, but um, President Trump does seem to be turning presidential tradition on its ear. Just yes, I know. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. He could do it if he's got a right. slow day. And Although he does have be- lots of other things that he can, a lot of other arrows in that quiver, too. Yeah. Speaking of that, now let's switch gear to the bigger, broader issues of of the legal uh, issues uh, that that surround the president. Uh, What was the most significant uh, legal thing that happened last uh, week to the president, in your view, Nick? 
the most significant legal thing that's happened for the president in the last week. Um, well, I don't know if it was quasi-legal, but it's basically, I would say, it's the James Comey book tour uh, that is probably the most significant because clearly Comey had been set up by himself and by the Democrats and by the media as being the main antagonist who's at least going on record about what's going on. And unfortunately for Comey, he largely destroyed his own credibility with his uh, media appearances. And uh, Dave, I know you may have a different view of that, but when we come back, we're going to also open up the phone lines. 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border. How do you feel how the president handled himself last week? And also about the book tour and James Comey. Has his reputation been completely destroyed, or do you still put him on a pillar? Back shortly from Chicago. First of all, back in Chicago. Uh, Dave Lundy, uh, what what do you think of the James Comey media rollout right now? Um, well, I'm sure this is going to come as a shock, but I, I don't agree with Nick's characterization um, that Comey completely destroyed his credibility. Um, look, I, I not completely. Did he destroy it somewhat? Well, the thing is, he he had started to hurt his credibility. I would agree with that. Um, but he was rescued by the Republican House members of the Intelligence Committee who threatened to um, uh, impeach. Rod Rosenstein, if he didn't release Comey's memos. So Comey wrote these 15 different memos. Um, uh, in the, he wrote them contemporaneously with his interactions with President Trump because he felt like President Trump was untrustworthy. Uh, and so the memos were, were other than uh, two of them, the memos were not leaked to anybody. They were just written and, and, and given within, held within the FBI. Um, and so Rod Rosenstein uh, was declined to offer them up to the House Republicans um, uh, on the, uh, who were wanted to see them. Um, and uh, they got into a little bit of a pissing contest. And at the end of the day, they forced the release of the memos. The re- memos were given to Congress. And within about 15 minutes, they were um, publicly available in the press. But-, um, but the memos back up everything James Comey said. The memos back up his recollection. The memos back up his testimony to Congress. The memos back up the stories that were written early on. There is nothing that is inconsistent between the memos and what Comey Where said. Where is the smoking gun, Dave? Where is the smoking gun? Where is Comey's smoking gun about Trump's supposed uh, obstruction of justice or anything else like that? I hope you go easy on Mike Flynn. That's the smoking gun. I hope you can let this go or whatever he said that was basically. And again, even if you decide that was obstruction of justice, which it clearly wasn't, it's basically him not believing that Flynn um, was guilty of anything. Okay, well. A, that's only a small, small part of the obstruction of justice question. Part of the obstruction of justice question was him firing uh, Comey to, uh, because he wanted to get him stop the Russia investigation. That's what he told the Russians in the Oval Office the day after he fired um, uh, Comey. So I, I, I love the Republican talking point now that, well, uh, there was no obstruction because it wasn't in the memos. Well, of course it wasn't in the memos. That happened after here's the que- here's the question that i have and i wrote a facebook post on it and i want to i want to get your reaction face to face because you're both uh, facebook friends of mine when i watched the interview last week the one thing that 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 stuck out very early in the interview was when comey said that he went in and he explained to donald trump some of the salacious aspects of the dossier and i think george stepanopoulos asked the question well you mean the steel? Did you reference the steel dossier? 
And Comey says, no, I don't, re- I don't think I mentioned that name. And then he, Stephan- Stephanopoulos asks, did you let him know the origin mm. of that essay or, or the, uh, the dossier? And Comey said, no, I, I, I really I, I did, just didn't think it was important to, to my goal for the meeting. Now, the next question was, which wasn't asked, what was your goal for the meeting? I mean, here you are, the top law enforcement mm. officer in the United States. You're meeting the president-elect of the United States. You're making a decision that you're going to share with him salacious information about him. And you don't report the origins and the fingerprints that are on that? I find that incredible. And I also find it incredible that Donald Trump didn't ask him what is your source. I'm, 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 I'm shocked by each of those actions. Well, look, but, Don, Trump is new to all of this, though, Bruce. That's the whole thing. I mean, this is a whole new world for him But if somebody is, sped, is spreading really garbage information about you, Nam, wouldn't you want to say, well, where's this coming that? from? No, but the, right, I mean, but the, but the I'm, better... I'm questioning but the, both people but here. the better question is why Comey didn't reveal it. And, yes. he, and he signaled why he didn't, because he had all of these knots in his stomach. I mean, he was like, I mean, what are you? Are you the head of the FBI, or are you like a, I don't know, a little girl or something? It's like he was so worked up about so-called his role in helping elect Donald Trump that I think he was trying to make up for it by basically presenting this information in a way that uh, wouldn't help Trump at all. I, I don't, I think that's a total misread. Uh, first of all, I, I agree with you. It's strange he didn't offer offer it up. Um, I find it stranger that Trump didn't ask. I mean, look, if you and I were meeting and you said, Dave, I know this, this is out there. I've heard this. My first question would be, where did you hear it right. from? Mm-hmm. Because that's absurd. Um, and so... Well, I think the first thing to do would be to deny it and worry that your wife might know about it, which allegedly is what he said. The second... But, but a, the, you're talking to the head of the FBI. He's supposed to know the answers to all of these questions. Right. And obviously, he didn't ask the question. But again... On, on a, uh, if you're judging the integrity of the FBI director, he was not there to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth well, of but, the president. But, but hang on a second, because j- just what would be the um, – what would he be trying to gain by withholding, by intentionally withholding that information? I don't know. Because the To point, make it appear more credible. Yeah, but the point wasn't whether it was credible or not. The point was that it existed and that there were people out there who were threatening to use it against him. That was but the I, point of the no, conversation. But I, think this, I, think the, I think the source was important because what you have there is you have an unwillingness of the FBI to, perform a, to provide a specific to the president-elect of the United States just as the FBI and the Justice Department prov- failed to provide specific information when they went to the FISA court. They didn't say that, that Hillary Clinton's fingerprints or her campaign's were fingerprints oh, were come all over. They on. didn't say it. Oh, come on. They very clearly said this is, from, this is from political opposition. And at the time, the political opposition was Hillary Clinton. And so it's either Hillary Clinton or it's the Democrats. No, the political opposition. What does it matter political whether it's Hillary political, Clinton or no, the Democrats? No, because I think a big question. Political opposition at that point in time could have been from a variety of sources. I mean, there could have been political opposition that, that started during the primaries. I think the larger question is, um, and, and I think somebody should have asked this question. There are a lot of questions. We've watched these interviews. I've yes. now seen, I think I've seen four of these interviews. Um, and I, I'm always yelling at the television saying, ask this follow-up, and they never do. But the, the best follow-up in that case would be, would you have told the president where the information came from had he asked? 
Comey may have because Comey may have just assumed, well, I'm going to give you this, and then the president's going to going to ask questions, say, well, where did this come from? And I would have volunteered that information. Um, look, I think on. you guys are trying to make a mountain out of a molehill in terms of that that. Speaking about of disclosure. mountains out of molehills, the Mueller investigation, all of this stuff, I mean, it's been now more than a year. The media, every Democratic activist group, um, Mueller's team have all been digging and digging and digging and digging. When does this come to an end? You had Patty Blagojevich on in your last segment. There's no question that prosecutors can be overzealous and special sure. prosecutors can be overzealous for sure, right? Yes. I mean, let's ask Ken Starr about that. Although okay. that's a totally different statute. All right, I understand. He had no, no there was no, but this is really important because this was a point that one of Donald Trump's um, flacks trying to make today, tried to make today, this morning, is to say, well, this is just like uh, uh, Kenneth Starr. Um, just independent counsel versus counsel. special counsel. I understand the difference. That's the independent counsel had no, there was nobody looking over his point, shoulder. The point I was making, which you've now tried to derail, Dave, is that the no, investigation I'm has been going on about Donald Trump for more than a year. And with lots of different parties looking, and there's nothing there. When That's do, not when true. Do, when do they say there's nothing there? <laughs> when do they acknowledge there's nothing there? Is it after? Ken Starr is was it, four or five years. Is it is it after the midterms when the Democrats take back enough seats to begin nonstop impeachment hearings? Okay, first That's of all, the question. To Bruce's point, Ken Starr was, I think, four and a half years. Um, mm-hmm. uh, second of all, you sound just like Richard Nixon did a year into the Watergate investigation. Um, at what point? When are we going to drop this? It's it's been going on for more than a year. I'm sorry. The time clock is not the relevant factor here. There have been 19 indictments. We know that, that they have evidence about the Russians. We know that they have evidence about the Russian interference in the election. We know that there's evidence of, hang on, we know that, there's, that there are serious questions about members of the Trump team, including Michael Cohn, including the June uh, um, visit with um, uh, Kushner, with uh, Manafort. Manafort, his campaign chair, got indicted. Two of his um, four activities before he became um, uh, Trump's campaign chairman. You're right, but Manafort was a was a well known Russian does, stooge. Does this does this issue the, the Russian investigation? It seems to me that you've got the anti-Trumpers on one side, you got the pro-Trumpers on the other side. Where are the independents? Where are the people who are somewhat apolitical, yet they will vote in November, and they could care less about this issue? Yes, I would to prefer them, that it's we- all rearview mirror stuff. It has nothing. Donald Trump no, is that- the president. Let's get on. Let's talk about issues that are important to us. How I many, would prefer independence. What percentage of people? It's, put it's, in that it's a small. Because they're going to decide what happens in November. It's a small number. The independents are going to decide, partly based on what the media keeps telling them, which is that Trump is the devil incarnate. But part of it's going to be in terms of pocketbook issues. You know, we have the tariffs that got put in place and the Chinese caved. We've got we're on the eve now, potentially, of North Korea agreeing to really give up their nukes, not the way they have for the last 30 years, potentially. If it is like everything's been the last 30 years, then it's going to be no different whatsoever. But the tax cut, and I know that's not popular, but people having more money in their pocket, that is what's going to cause them to vote one way or the other. If the economy improves, they're going to be more supportive. But the, the bigger issue is Trump isn't on the ballot in November. 
He he's not that, and he the personality that he brings. He has no coattails. I think everybody can agree to that. And Paul Ryan stepping aside on his own terms strongly suggests that the Republicans are going to lose the House. Yeah, Trump has absolutely. Trump is absolutely on the ballot, not physically, but he is absolutely. Of course, he is on for every ballot. Democrat. Absolutely. Yeah, and and every Republican, including the um, record number of, of of Republican retirements from the House. Um, look, I I think that. I would be very happy, and because I've actually said this on this show repeatedly, um, that let Mueller do his work. I don't want to spend all this time talking about Russia. I want to talk about everything else that Donald Trump has done to degrade the presidency and destroy our country. Um, and I want to make the election in November about that. Okay. Will that record include Secretary of State Mike Pompeo? We'll talk about that when we come back. one 800 8289 The question... Should the President of the United States be allowed his pick to be Secretary of State? Back shortly. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at com. Bruce Dumont back. Let's go to Mike listening to us on KXLY in Spokane, Washington. Go ahead, Mike. You're on the air. Thank you, Bruce, for taking my call. Um, this is uh, since the FBI raided Michael Cohen's home, President Trump's legal attorney, and endangering lawyer-client privilege regarding what we think of Trump. Um, what, has, there, has this been appealed at all, which sets a precedent? What is the status of this appeal? Well, it, it's not appealed at the moment. The, the, the information has been gathered. Uh, there's now uh, legal action going on as to how much of that gathered information from Michael Cohn. The Justice Department is in possession of it, and the Trump lawyers are saying, we want to we want to see everything that you have, and that's where it is, t- to my knowledge. And the question is whether or not there are things in there that violate lawyer client, uh, you know, privileges. But but the bar to be able to do that, to be able to pierce the attorney client privilege veil right. and look at these documents, that is supposedly extraordinarily high. And again, whether there's accuracy in Trump's tweets and statements about that. Any reasonable person who has an attorney for any legitimate reason has to be concerned that what they've believed to be the case for years, that it is sacrosanct, a client's communication with his or her attorney is not ever going to be revealed, has to wonder whether that has flown out the window now. But attorney-client privilege is not absolute. Right. Attorney-client privilege is limited. Um, and so uh, if if they were doing deals as business partners, um, not as if Cohn was functioning, not as his lawyer, there's no privilege there. Um, and so that is a question that undoubtedly is going to be. But is he providing legal information? I mean, that's that would seem to be, to be a fine hair to kind of split. 
Well, and that, that's going to be the that's gonna, he's giving business advice. Well, that's going to be a question for the courts to to decide. I mean, look, I, as a well, recovering I mean, attorney, there may be other things that Michael Cohen is involved in, aware of that are part of what they will find or they will get clarified, and they will have information. You would think they'd have enough information to squeeze Michael Cohen. And according to the published reports, one of the things that the White House allegedly is concerned about is that they've got information they're going to they're going to they're going to twist them they're going to make them turn on on the president and uh, and start singing like a songbird well and maybe that's one of the reasons why he pardoned scooter libby as well just to basically say don't worry about it whatever they convict you of just you know be strong you know don't turn anything over who knows but, who knows but it's interesting He's because he turned it over because no, it was seized seized yeah right but but it's interesting because look the president has said over and over again and has tweeted uh, he's been the tweeter in chief this weekend, um, but he's tweeted a lot about how Michael Cohn is not going to turn on him. And um, look, the person who's saying that Michael Cohn is going to turn on him is Donald Trump's def- uh, divorce lawyer. And the other person who's saying that Michael Cohn's going to turn on him is Roger Stone. So it's not as if this is just a bunch of Democrats that are saying, oh, Michael Cohn's going to turn on you. I mean, they're saying he's going to turn on him in a heartbeat. Um, Roger Stone was uh, uh, interviewed the other night and said uh, uh, said that uh, – Michael Cohn was abused by Donald Trump for years and years and years, emotionally abused. Look, Roger Stone, he's been on this show. Um, I was on the show with Roger Stone once. Um, was interesting. Mike, thanks for your call. Let's go to Scott in Austin, Texas. Go ahead. You're on the air. Scott, are you there? Sound like you dropped Scott, off. line three, are you there? Well, he's not popping up here, so we're going to move on to the question I asked before the break. Every president in the history of the country has been able to put in place a secretary of state that he wants to guide him and consult with him in the foreign affairs of the United States. Why should that tradition be broken? Because Democrats in the U.S. Senate don't like Mike Pompeo. Dave. Well, Bruce, um, I think you might want to direct your attention to Rand Paul, who is a Republican. He's and not who, here. What's that? He's not here. I'm directing <laughs> him to you. You're, you're going to pick out the one. He's Republican. ducking it again. No, I'm not going to. I'm not. I'm, I'm asking you a practical question here. Yes, okay? there are serious the questions about Mike Pompeo. Country, what are the serious reservations about Michael Pompeo, who was approved? by this Democratic Senate to be the head of the CIA that's got a hell of a lot more secrets than the Secretary of State. There's a big difference between being the chief diplomat of the United States and being the chief spook of the United States. And, um, and I think that, what's that? What are they? They're different skill requirements to represent the United Based States. Based on what job description by whom? Written what, by whom? The founding fathers and what the Secretary of State is. Um, uh, I, I don't think they wrote about qualifications. Uh, no, they wrote about... You're talking about the ability of someone to speak quietly and maybe secretly go over to meet with Kim Jong-un without anybody in the Washington press corps knowing about it? Now, is that is that the spook or is that the... the, which, the which, by the way, is, is the reason it? that that was leaked out in order to help his support for Secretary of State. Was it a good move for him to make? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, was he acting as the spook or was he acting as the secretary of state in waiting when he when he did this? It is is a very important 
endeavor. This is a very important time in the history of the country because three months ago we were talking about the possibility of nuclear war with North Korea. The president and Kim Jong-un together, independently, these two wacky guys, they have reduced the level and the likelihood of that. They want to talk now. And some people have said, well, we shouldn't talk without having some preconditions. So the president approves Mike Pompei going secretly to North Korea to meet with Kim Jong-un to set up this big meeting that could save and denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. This is big, big stuff. This is really big stuff. Why shouldn't the president be able to select the man or woman he wants to send to do this job? No other president has been not denied this in the history of the country. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what your point is, Bruce. There's an advise and consent role of the United States Senate. My point is they have already given advice and consent for Mike Pompey For a different job. Dave, come on. That's so disingenuous. It's not disingenuous. It is is disingenuous. Okay, then why was Merrick Garland approved almost unanimously for the appellate court and denied even a vote for the Supreme Court? Apples and oranges. And so is CIA and Secretary of State. Tell me the difference. I know the roles are different, but tell me. Who do you think knows more about what's going on in the world? Is it the Secretary of State? No, one, no, I'm, asking you. I'm sorry. One We're is a diplomatic job managing a, a massive enterprise. And by the way, one of the key questions that I think the Senate is entitled to ask is whether he is going to restore the State Department. I know that that came out. No, no. You could shake Dave, your head all Dave, you want, Dave, it's ridiculous. Nick. It's if, not Dave, ridiculous. Dave, if, listen, listen, Excuse Dave. Me, let me, let me say something. Dave, let me say something. Let me say we something, We now Dave. have a State Department Dave. that has massive vacancies. That has absolutely nothing to do with anything at all. But a nice try to, de- to deflect it again. Let me make this one point, Dave. If if it was a Republican-controlled Congress with one Democrat like your Rand Paul distraction who was preventing Barack Obama from naming Hillary Clinton or anybody else that he chose as his Secretary of State— you would appropriately be going absolutely bananas. There's no question about that. You can deny it if you like, but that's, it's absolutely false. Pompeo graduated from Yale, graduated from uh, West Point, number one in his class, confirmed it for the CIA. This is all pure politics, but this is now the Democrats, and if you want to throw Rand Paul in, taking politics to a new level. To Bruce's point, it's never been done in more than 200 years of history in this country. Okay, but so the Democrats are doing it now on somebody who is ask, eminently qualified. I'm going to ask you a question now from a political standpoint. Is this, is this a battle the president wants to win? Or by, by keeping Monk, Mike Pompey from going to Secretary of State, does that give the Republicans an issue in every campaign for every U.S. Senate seat that's up in a red state – to go and make the case, like I've just made to, to Dave, that the Democrat incumbent senator in that, in that state is un-American. Well, that certainly gives you a lot of campaign fodder to use. And if, God forbid, things go sideways now with North Korea because the president couldn't have his choice, who had already developed a rapport with Kim Jong-un in place, absolutely. Do you believe at one point it was suggested that Rudy Giuliani was going to be Secretary of State. Rudy Giuliani has now joined, this was early in the administration, Rudy Giuliani is now back in the public for, uh, or in the forefront, being a member of Trump's legal team. Does this set up a situation where is if Michael Pompey is discarded by the U.S. Senate, 
is Rudy Giuliani there to be his next choice, and do the Democrats do a number on him? And we have a vacant office of Secretary of State. Dave, who would you rather have? Let me ask you. Who would you, I, I'm, I'm who befuddled, would you Bruce. Rather, who would you rather have as Secretary of State, Mike Pompey or Rudy Giuliani, if those were your choices? Is, is death an option? Um, <laughs> no. Uh, look, uh, first of all, I don't, I don't think Rudy Giuliani was ever considered for Secretary of State. He was, no, he was. Mitt he was. Romney was. No, no, he was. He, Romney, Giuliani was. Romney Giuliani was. Yeah. Giuliani? Yeah. Early, 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 early. That was a and, bizarre choice. Yeah. Well, um, may get it, of all may of get the Giuliani it interests and the consultancy that he did oh, for all these. I you remember that, I'm sure. Uh, no, no, I really, I, I so totally forgot the question. Giuliani Back boomlet. to my question. And back to my well, challenge. By the way, you never asked me whether what I thought about this. You just. What do you want? Well, I asked you. asked you for it. No, you asked me Are if it's legitimate vote? for the Democrats to, to do this, and it's absolutely legitimate. No, it's I don't have a vote. Um, uh, I, I, I look. I think that Mike Pompeo uh, is is a uh, is an extremist with extreme views. Um, I think that Mike what Pompeo. Are the, what are the extremist views that he has? Oh, Bruce, Mike Pompeo was is, was an extreme conservative, which is one of the reasons that he was put in place in the CIA. I had no problem with him taking the CIA job. Why? I think it's a different position to be Secretary of State. And I don't understand why you're suggesting that there's no difference in, in the skills or in the positions or in the roles being Secretary of State and being the head the of the Senate CIA. The Senate just confirmed him to be the head of the CIA. What was that? Not even a year ago. Great. So he should stay as head of the CIA. <laughs> I want to and get the president shouldn't have his choice. Yes. Does the president deserve the right to select his secretary of state? Dave and says how no. How should we view Democrats who say no to tradition? Back shortly. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live. The experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. We are back, and uh, Jim, uh, John rather, listening to us on KBOI in Boise, Idaho, has called to my attention that it is Pompeii, not Pompeii. Oh! No, it is Pompeo, not Pompeii. Well, then, then I am right, and John is wrong. Pompeo, Pompeo. Pompeo. I thought it was Pompeo. I know. So but anyway, you said Pompeii. Well, you say Pompeii, I say Pompeo. Let's go to Jim in Sacramento, <laughs> California. Let's cut the whole deal off. Go ahead. You're listening to KTKZ, the Sacramento of the Golden State, the capital of the Golden State. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think he should be confirmed. Just three months ago. Uh, we were we were on the verge of Armageddon, and and it was on the news on every single second of the day how Trump was uh, being bombast and being so authoritative he was going to give us in and so forceful that he was going to give it get us in a potential nuclear war. Everybody was going nuts, um, and now uh, we know that Pompeii has gone behind the scenes, back channel, and started negotiations. And North Korea is willing to come to the table for the first time and get something worked out with the United States and North Korea. I think that should be noted. And it's never, and I'm an independent, I'm an independent. And the Democrats will never give this president one sentence of positive information, no matter what he does or how he does it. They refuse 
to be positive in any way, shape, or form. Jim, as you, is- were spe- as you were speaking and, and citing your litany of all the good things that uh, Pompeo has done, Dave Lundy, you could not hear him on the radio. He was shaking his head horizontally, disagreeing with you. So, Dave, <laughs> where is Jim wrong? Uh, he's wrong that, that we've never sat down with North Korea. Of course we've sat down with North Korea. Madeleine we've Albright. Re- we have repeatedly sat down with North Korea. And I'm going to quote Ari Fleischer, um, the noted conservative and George W. Bush's uh, uh, press secretary. Yes. He tweeted out yesterday, Call me a cynic, but based on history, number one, they'll suspend today and begin again tomorrow. Number two, they have alternative ways sites to carry out their mission. And number three, they're lying now or will lie tomorrow. This is how North Korea behaves. Remember the agreed framework. My simple point is, this is Ari Fleischer. You you attack Ari, don't attack me. Um, My simple point, though, is we don't know that we have anything agreed to whatsoever. No, but that's everything that Ari Fleischer, that you read, that Ari Fleischer read, said is correct. But so is the caller in terms of, and what Bruce was saying earlier, we were allegedly on the brink of nuclear war three months ago. Do you remember that, Dave? Yes, I do. Okay. Are we now in a slightly different political posture relative to North Korea? It would yes. appear so. Appear yes. so? Maybe just slightly different, Dave? It would appear just so. slightly different. That There has got to be some acknowledgement of that. I will acknowledge that we are not in the same position we were when he was calling him Little Rocket is that, Man. Is that a good but thing? I would you know like what, though, to see. But here, but, Go ahead, Jim. But here's the, ca- here's the case. He is a dictator. What dictator is going to come to the table and be honest and be forthright and be willing to do exactly what the agreement says? None of them do. We give them something quid pro quo. You give us something, we give you something, and you try to get the best deal you possibly can when you know full well that they're not going to hold up to the entire agreement. We all know this. Secondly, real quick, I want to talk about quickly about the James Comey when he went into the office. James Comey should have been forthright in telling the president why exactly he was there. This right. is what I have, Mr. President. This is what's going on, and this is what... Uh, I'm giving you the information, the proper information you need to make a rational decision. There, there should have been no uh, ambiguity whatsoever coming from the head of the FBI talking to his right. boss, the president of the United States. Secondly, I'm a federal employee. I work for the Social Security Administration. I took an oath to uphold the Constitution, as did any other congressman, person that works for the United States government. And I hold that oath, I, I hold that oath dear to my heart. We, need, we, have, we have real problems in this country, and we are sick and tired. We, the people, are sick and tired of these nuanced questions. And you guys came up with four or five questions, why Jim Comey did this and how he did that, how Trump should have said this, and why didn't he say that, instead of just being straight ahead and saying, Comey should have told me exactly what was going on. Yeah, that's came my from point. The document. That is that's... It's ridiculous, and the American people are sick and tired of it, and you're going to see that reflected in the voting come 2018 and in the presidential, presidential election in the next presidency. Jim, thank you for your call from Sacramento. Let's uh, head to San Francisco, not too far away. Michael is listening to us on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. You take the other position on Mr. Pompeo. Why? Well, Trump had his choice, and he blew it once. And as a matter of fact, he's blown pretty much all of his choices. No. What, what are you talking about, sir? He picked a secretary of state. Yes, and the secretary and the secretary of state did not work out to the president's liking, and the president has an opportunity to let people go if he doesn't think they're doing a good job. Which means that the Congress and the Democrats, and by the way, the Republicans, the last time anyone looked, are in the majority. Yes. But 
And that means that this time we're going to be a little more careful. We're not going to just let this mindless, half-witted president just pick any old person he wants and cause a lot of trouble and then have to go through this all over again. We're Michael, so Michael, careful. one second. Here, here's my point. Uh, you, you can disagree, but boy, when, when you're talking about a half-witted president, we know who you're talking about. When you're talking about Michael Pompey, you're oh. talking about a guy who was number one at West Point, a graduate from Harvard Law School, a, a, a longtime member of Congress who was confirmed by the Senate in many Democratic votes to be the head of the CIA, the number one spook in the world. So the guy, the guy is not exactly chopped liver. Take the CIA out of it. You throw a rock and watch, and you'll hit ten people who aren't Muslim haters and gay haters like Mike Pompeo, who have equally, if not better, qualifications and aren't going to bend over and do exactly what Trump does. And by the way, the idea that we are on the brink of nuclear war with North Korea is so silly that it's hard to even stop laughing thinking about that idea. Okay. That well, laugh, laugh your troubles away, Michael. Uh, we thank you for your call. We do appreciate it uh, to hear the perspective from San Francisco this evening. And, uh, again, uh, we thank you very much. Uh, our thanks to Nick Com and our thanks to Dave Lundy for being with us this evening. Early in the broadcast, we heard from Larry Goodman, and our special guest earlier was Patty Blagojevich, the former First Lady of Illinois. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Chicago. the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster when floodwaters reach your door when wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood or an earthquake is destroying buildings or is the best time perhaps today during a disaster you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today don't wait communicate brought to you by fema and the ad council Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760 760- 799-7096. That's 
7096 or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com.